This morning we're going to finish looking at the last long block of Jesus' teaching that Matthew has recorded for us. The last sentence of this last teaching block actually summarizes the point particularly well. And so I want to start at the end and then raise a couple of big questions that we need to address at the beginning. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So at the end of Jesus' teaching, he divides humanity in two ultimate categories with two different final destinies. One group will enter a place where they will experience eternal punishment. Another group, which he labels as the righteous, will enter a place where they will experience eternal life. I'm sure everyone here wants to be in that second group. As Jesus depicts the final judgment in this passage, he shows there are only two possibilities. It is of the utmost importance that you and I today understand how we can know which direction we're headed. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Kingdom Life Discourse, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus depicted the two destinations as life and destruction. And he depicted the path that leads to life as narrow and hard, while he depicted the path that leads to destruction as wide and easy. We want to understand how Jesus has defined that narrow and hard path that leads to eternal life. What does Jesus say about how to get there? We've seen how Jesus defines certain entrance requirements when speaking of entering or inheriting the kingdom. And in our passage this morning, he'll equate inheriting the kingdom with entering eternal life again. Seeing that Jesus refers to those who enter life as the righteous, we should recall his words from Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that kind of righteousness is required for someone to enter and inherit the kingdom, to enter and inherit eternal life, then it's important to know how can we get that kind of righteousness. This is where we have to think carefully about what the New Testament teaches us about the righteousness of Christians. Jesus has repeatedly indicated that the final judgment for all people will be conducted according to our works. Yet we all know that the New Testament also proclaims loudly and clearly that we are justified, counted righteous by faith alone. So, how can our justification be by faith while our judgment will be according to works? We will see the way Jesus paints a picture of judgment according to works in this passage, but we can recall his very clear statement communicating this truth earlier in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 16, 27, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Statements like this can be found all through the Bible. It's perhaps most helpful to consider the way Paul says the same kind of thing, especially in light of the fact that it is the Apostle Paul who writes most consistently and most clearly about our justification by faith as well. We can limit our reflections to the book of Romans, where both concepts are clearly taught. Consider first some of his clear statements about justification by faith. Romans 3.28, 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.16 And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Talking about Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Before we pull in the verses that must be held in tension with these, let's make sure we understand what we mean by the word justification. Justification refers to the verdict of righteous, that God the judge pronounces over sinners, declaring ungodly people to be righteous without consideration of any works or deeds of righteousness in our experience. The ones who receive this verdict receive it as a free gift, totally by grace, as Paul said in Romans 5.16. Thus, this verdict isn't earned, bartered, or otherwise purchased by us. Instead, the genuine righteousness of Jesus himself which was, which was earned by his totally complete obedience to God throughout his life on earth. His perfect righteousness is imputed, counted to every sinner who trusts Jesus, who believes the gospel, who has faith in Christ. God grants this verdict to guilty sinners who trust Jesus. But a second set of verses from Romans needs to be considered. In Romans 2.13, Paul writes... For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He writes these words before he writes anything about being justified by faith. When we see in Romans 3.24 that people are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we can see the connection between justification and eternal life. Famously, Romans 6.23 says... For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then he also wrote in Romans 2, 6 and 7, that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then he adds in verse 10 that there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Justified by grace and justified by faith. Justification is a free gift received by faith. But it's only the doers of the law who will be justified. The free gift of justification is connected to the free gift of eternal life. The recipients of the gift of eternal life are those who seek for glory and honor and immortality demonstrated in their patiently doing good works. Each person will be judged according to his works. I have been accused of using the concept of tension as an escape hatch, and I'll own it. There is a legitimate need to escape an apparent contradiction in Scripture. Nevertheless, I don't think this is a genuine contradiction, not by a long shot. 
In fact, I think these concepts fit together rather beautifully and make remarkable sense in a way that magnifies the, and brightly highlights the beauty of God's perfect justice. As Matt Bedzik, pastor of Emmanuel Community Church in Elmira, puts it, those who have been justified by faith will be judged according to their works on the last day in order that their works might publicly testify to the validity of their past justification. There is only a tension between faith and works because we sinful people have a tendency to misplace the place of works in our salvation. We vividly remember the verses that emphasize how justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law. A few of those we just looked at. Or we remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then we can forget Ephesians 2, 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace saves us. Grace justifies us. And we should remember that justification is only a small part of our salvation. Works don't justify us. Works don't persuade God to declare the verdict of righteous over our lives. Works don't save us from our slavery or free us from our prison or rescue us from God's wrath. Grace does as we receive what is offered. But that's not the end of our salvation. Grace saves us in order that we might do good works. And those good works are not merely for making the world a better place. Those good works are going to serve as the evidence of what God has done in our lives by His grace. Grace saves us, grace justifies us, and then grace enables us to do good works. Pastor Bedzik says it like this, grace is the faith-creating, sin-conquering, mind-renewing, and heart-transforming power of the new creation in Christ. A power that produces good works of enduring obedience to God and Christ-like love for neighbor. Faith is invisible. Works are visible. Works serve as the evidence of faith. And in God's court of law... There must be evidence that supports the verdict. The marvel of God's grace in freely justifying the ungodly while we're still sinners is that the verdict is pronounced before the evidence is recorded. In fact, the verdict is pronounced before the evidence even exists. And the most excellent beauty of Judgment Day will be the public vindication of God showing to all the universe that he remained a righteous judge in justifying the ungodly. Our judgment will be according to works, and it will accord with our justification by faith. This judgment will be about magnifying the grace of God, showing how every aspect of our salvation was due to his grace alone. Pastor Bedzik reminds us of this point like this, How is it that good works are the verifiable proof of genuine saving faith? The answer is that the grace of God in Christ is not only a liberating pardon, but a transforming power. 
Now, that was a long theological introduction. We have a lengthy passage in Matthew to unpack. Matthew's gospel has been structured around five long blocks of Jesus' teaching. And interestingly, Jesus speaks about judgment toward the end of all of them. As Jesus sits here on the Mount of Olives, three days before his crucifixion, he concludes his teaching about his coming in response to the disciples' questions with a picture of universal, final judgment in terms of the separation of sheep from goats. One writer has said that Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, is perhaps the most profoundly difficult text in Matthew. So here we go. It is often referred to as a parable, but it is not truly a parable, or at least it doesn't start like most of Jesus' other parables. Since he begins with the straightforward words, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, words that he has said earlier, I think he's essentially speaking prophetically about his second coming. He then utilizes the image of a shepherd separating sheep from goats to highlight a particular aspect of the judgment he will execute when he returns. Note that. We shouldn't view this as though it says everything about the final judgment or tells us exactly how it's going to happen. That's not the point. The previous three parables have illustrated metaphorically what being ready for Jesus' return should look like. But in this passage, he will indicate what readiness for his return looks like unmetaphorically. We begin with verses 31 to 33. Matthew 25, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Earlier in this conversation, Jesus had told His disciples that His coming was completely unpredictable. After certain events in history, he could come at any moment. I suggested that the last key historical event was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Thus, Jesus has been at the door or at the gates since that day, waiting, patiently extending mercy to save his chosen people throughout history. He will bust through the door on the day the Father has set. Among the things he will do when he returns, he will execute judgment and reward the righteous. Jesus depicts universal judgment here. Pastor Doug O'Donnell observes, Jesus is the sole judge of the world, and absolutely every angel circles around him, and absolutely every person stands before him. There are different opinions about who is represented by all the nations. One student of Historical interpretation has counted 32 different interpretations of that phrase. I will not list them. I believe he is referring to all human beings. This is not limited to Gentiles, and this cannot be a reference to some kind of judgment of nations as nations, as though the United States and China and Canada and Mexico will have some kind of corporate national judgment. Thus, I believe there's no basis for the somewhat popular idea that this judgment is dealing with the nations that exist during the final seven-year tribulation period, and that the basis of this judgment will be in how the nations treated the Jews 
And the reward being offered here is entry into the millennial kingdom. Every detail of that interpretation is, is a novel idea forced into the story that no Christian ever apparently thought of before the late 1800s. This is the final judgment, and it will be the people of all nations, including Israel, who will be gathered before the enthroned Son of Man. In light of the fact that when Jesus comes again, the Great Commission will have been fulfilled, the gospel will have been proclaimed to all the nations, the individuals from all nations must face judgment. And as we'll see in just a bit, a feature of this judgment will be how individuals responded to Christ's messengers. That's not the only feature of this judgment, according to other scriptures, but I believe that is the feature that Jesus zooms in on here. That this judgment deals with individuals is made clear in the second part of verse 32. Jesus says, as the ESV puts it, he will separate people one from another. Now, the New American Standard Bible and the King James Version and a few other translations say something like, he will separate them one from another, which seems to support the idea that Jesus is separating nations from each other. However, this is a place where translating strictly literally misleads us. The Greek word is the pronoun for them, but it is in a different grammatical gender than the word nations. In other words... Matthew has made it clear to his Greek readers that he means the individual people within the nations are being separated from each other, not the nations. If he had meant that Jesus will separate the nations from each other, he would have matched the grammatical gender of nations with the grammatical gender of them. So the ESV and other versions that have the word people here are more accurately communicating Jesus' point in this verse. It's at this point that Jesus introduces the image of sheep and goats. The separation indicates that there are two types of people in all nations. Those Jesus classes as sheep and those Jesus classes as goats. Why sheep and goats? Probably Jesus chooses to define those he will place on his right as sheep because frequently in the Old Testament, God's people are depicted as sheep. It has been noted that sheep are the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible, but beyond this, the fact that Jesus identifies himself as a shepherd in in line with God's identification of himself as the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament, this may have shaped Jesus' thoughts here. In the Old Testament, kings were often compared with shepherds and their subjects, to sheep. What features of sheep make them appropriate as an image for God's people? Often we jokingly talk about the sheepy quality of Christians, and I get the word sheepy from Andy Norris, and we tend to first reflect on their stupidity. I actually don't think this is reflected in Scripture. Rather, sheep are wanderers. They do have a tendency to get lost, to drift away from their flock. But more positively, sheep are not domineering. They don't dominate other people. They don't assert themselves. They tend to be gentle. And as accented in John 10, sheep listen to their shepherd. This, I believe, is the most important quality of Christians viewed as sheep. Christians listen to the voice of Jesus. This is in contrast with goats. 
God's people are never symbolized by goats in the Bible. Goats are independent creatures. They're reckless, harmful, and destructive. They tear things up. And in mixed flocks, where sheep and goats live together, goats often wreak havoc among the sheep, starting fights with them and seeking to push them around. Goats are domineering. In the book of Daniel, the prophet has a vision featuring a goat that attacks and destroys a ram, which is a male sheep. That goat represented the Greek empire, which was going to conquer the Persian empire, represented by the ram. But more importantly, the point of Daniel's vision was to show how the Greek empire would include a wicked king who would wreak havoc against God's people. So... Though Jesus will not refer to the goats as wicked in this passage, their final destination in hell certainly fits as a description of the wicked. And we'll see that the reason that they are condemned is not because of horrific wickedness, blatant idolatry, or gross immorality, as we might expect of people symbolized by goats. But let's press on here with a look at how the sheep inherit the kingdom. Look at verses 34 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The Son of Man is now the king, which makes sense in light of Jesus' identity. He is the son of man Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7, receiving God's eternal kingdom, dominion and authority over all nations. He is indeed king of kings. Let's reflect on this section by addressing three questions. First, who are the sheep? We've already talked generally about this, but Jesus provides some specific description here. First, they are those who are blessed by my Father. This is not the same word for blessed as we saw in the Beatitudes. This is the more active word, bless. It refers to God's speech. When God blesses, He decrees good for someone. He extends grace to them. He speaks and good comes into your life. We get our English word eulogy from this Greek word. And in the Bible, it tends to refer to something spoken that makes a positive difference in someone's life. When God is the speaker, it often reflects His creative power. He speaks, and the universe comes into existence. When He speaks to bless, good things come into your life. This phrase is a descriptive phrase. It's an identity marker. These sheep are eulogized by Jesus' Father, and His blessing defines them. They are blessed, truly. 
Secondly, that they are commanded to inherit the kingdom implies that they are God's adopted children. If you have an inheritance coming, you must be a son. The sheep are God's adopted sons. Ultimately, this is Jesus' inheritance. As the true and eternal Son of God, He is the heir of all things, as the author of Hebrews puts it. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17, that God's adopted children are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, meaning that He shares His inheritance with His adopted siblings. So the sheep are adopted sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. Jesus adds that this kingdom has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This adds a fascinating predestinarian element to the identity of the sheep. This is important to keep in mind in this passage, since Jesus so emphasizes the works, the deeds of the sheep, God's gracious election, and God's ongoing gracious blessing precedes and grounds the good deeds of the sheep. Professor Charles Quarles comments, Without this reference to divine election, the righteous might appear to enter the kingdom based on their own merits. It would seem that they deserved to enter the kingdom because they fed the hungry and watered and gave water to the thirsty and so forth. But the reference to divine election prevents this misunderstanding. Thirdly, in verse 37, the sheep are identified as the righteous people. In Matthew's gospel, the term righteous certainly focuses on the righteous conduct of people. While Paul emphasizes the righteous status granted to sinners when they trust in Jesus, justification by faith, Matthew emphasizes the righteous conduct of those justified sinners. They are righteous because they have been counted righteous by God, and they do righteous deeds because they have been counted righteous by God. Finally, in verse 40, we get an indication that the sheep are the king's siblings. Now, some folks want to see the brothers as a different group than the sheep, but I think that's unlikely. I think when Jesus speaks of these, my brothers, he envisions the king waving his hand, directing toward the sheep. What this means is that what he has in mind is the actions of the sheep in caring for each other. Back in Matthew 12, 49... Jesus had pointed to his disciples in a similar way and identified them as his siblings. This clearly indicates that Jesus' brothers, Jesus' siblings, refer to his disciples, his followers, all who believe in him. He also specifies that it is the least of these, my brothers. We could simplify this to be the littlest of his siblings, or even his little brothers and his little sisters. But I don't think he means to refer to a subset of his siblings. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus referred to his disciples as little ones. Most relevant is Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Followers of Jesus are considered to be little ones because they humble themselves in depending on him and trusting Him for salvation and for life. Thus, I take my stand with the majority of students of Scripture prior to the 1800s that the least of these does not refer to the impoverished and needy people of the world, whether Christian or not. 
The focus of the judgment here is on how Christians have been treated. We'll explore that further in just a minute. Now, in verses 35 and 36, we, consider, we can consider the question, why do they inherit? Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 35. This gives the reason or the basis for the command, inherit, and ultimately provides a basis for the positive judgment and rewarding of the sheep. It is according to what they have done. Specifically, they inherit because they have treated the king in certain ways. It's strange, don't you think, to imagine a king going hungry, a king needing water, a king being a stranger to his own people, a king naked, needing his people to clothe him, a king who is sick, needing his citizens to come visit him, or a king imprisoned who would have his own people come to visit him. Such a needy king is almost a paradox. And when we're thinking about this applying to Jesus specifically, as we should, we don't know of any occasions recorded in Scripture where Jesus was sick or imprisoned or even where he, de- he depended on his disciples for food or water. And it's this fact that justifies the sheep's perplexed response. It, if the sheep represent all believers in Jesus of all times, the vast majority of them never have seen Jesus in the flesh, much less in these conditions. The actions of the sheep are quite simple. He doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me. He doesn't say, I was in prison and you set me free. As Dale Bruner writes, big miracles aren't happening here. Little ministries are. And as another writer has noted, the sheep did not go above and beyond the call of duty in terms of meeting the king's need. They simply provided a fitting response to the situations in which the king found himself. In many ways, the service the king describes simply came in terms of the sheep treating him like he was a member of their family, which he is. There's no mention here of faith. There's no mention here of spectacular miracles. There's no mention of religious duties like praying, fasting, or tithing. Every item is a mundane, simple, non-flashy act of love and service. As one writer puts it, the king is not rewarding the sheep for saving the world. That's not what they did. Rather, the king rewards them for having met his basic human needs. But the sheep are surprised by these words. They don't seem to know that they did these things, that they served the king this way. They are not surprised by the fact that they are inheriting the kingdom. They are, they are surprised by the reasons the king gives. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, so the righteous weren't surprised that they were saved, but they were surprised that their little actions to the little people to whom they gave little thought were a big deal to Jesus. Perhaps it's similar to how we might be surprised that our judgment is going to be according to works. Let's consider why they don't seem to know. Ultimately, the reason they don't seem aware of their ever having served the king in these ways is because they didn't literally serve the king in these ways. The king explains in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The king so identifies with his siblings that anything done for them counts as being done for him. This is parallel to how Jesus so identifies with his church that what is done against the church is done against him. 
This is why Jesus in Acts 9-4 can appear to Saul of Tarsus and identify himself saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus was literally in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, having received all authority in heaven and on earth. Saul never lifted a hand against Jesus personally, but he had arrested Christians. He had worked to sentence them to death. He had threatened churches. This important, vital connection between Christ and His church must be understood. The king pictures the reason for their inheritance, the basis of their judgment as how they treated Him, how they responded to Him. Yet what was visible to the world and what was even visible to themselves was them treating His siblings a certain way. Thus we find the crucial thoroughly biblical, both and, of faith and works. But here, as in other places, they are not treated as though they are totally distinct. You can't have works without faith. But with faith, you will have works. Another reason the sheep don't seem to know that they've served the king in these ways is because they didn't do these things with the conscious goal of earning some reward from the king. They simply saw a fellow sheep in need and they acted to meet that need. They didn't think twice. They didn't overanalyze. They simply acted without expecting repayment. Finally, another reason the sheep exhibit a certain ignorance or amnesia about their service to the king is that they are not hypocrites. There was no pretense in their deeds. What they did on the outside matched what was on the inside. Their service to the king through his siblings flowed out of faith in the king and was therefore the visible evidence of their own relationship with the king. Now we must turn to the left and look at the goats. Look at verses 41 to 46 where we find out that goats go to hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We'll work through this section with the same basic questions as before. First, who are the goats? The only further specific description Jesus gives is that they are cursed. They remain under the curse of God against sin. In other words, they haven't had their sins forgiven. They haven't had the curse removed from them by Jesus' death on the cross. They haven't believed the gospel. Given that they are set opposite the sheep who are identified as the righteous... I think it's biblically safe to suggest that these goats represent all the wicked, all unbelievers from all the nations, from all of history. Thus, I think I've been wrong in the past to use the image of the goat to refer specifically and only 
to fake followers of Jesus. Surely a fake follower of Jesus is indeed a goat, but so is every person on the planet who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. I don't think Jesus' point here in contrasting sheep and goats is because they look a lot alike, even though that may be true among certain species. Here, their actions are sharply contrasted. However, it is important to notice his dismissal of the goats. Depart from me. That should sound disturbingly familiar. That is what Jesus will say to many on Judgment Day who will address him as Lord and will claim that they had prophesied, cast out demons, and done many mighty works all in the name of Jesus during their lifetimes. But then in Matthew 7.23, in the face of their protests, Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those were fake followers of Jesus, including some false teachers. Jesus' rejection of them is the same rejection we see here of the goats. Those workers of lawlessness will be among the goats, but the goats are a much larger group than that. But the more important question is, why do they go to hell? First, let me say a word about hell. In verse 41 and in verse 46, Jesus characterizes the final destination of the goats as eternal fire and eternal punishment, respectively. This is in contrast to the eternal life of the sheep in God's kingdom. In another passage in Mark 9, Jesus describes this eternal fire as unquenchable. It is a fire that can never be extinguished. Here also, Jesus characterizes this place as having been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a contrast with what God has done for the sheep. God had prepared the kingdom for the sheep in the beginning when he created the universe. God didn't create hell for the goats. He didn't create hell for people. And as the kingdom was prepared for the sheep to inherit, because they are sons of God... So also those who don't follow Jesus will be exiled to hell because they are sons of the devil, offspring of the serpent. Jesus also doesn't say that God prepared hell from the foundation of the world, which may imply that God took some area of his good creation and prepared it as a place of punishment, perhaps after Satan entered the garden with the intent to ruin God's creation through tempting humanity to rebel against God. In any case, this contrast surely reminds us that God's original purposes were for life and blessing, and only secondarily for punishment and curse. That this eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels is is reflected also in Revelation 20.10, where we read about the devil finally being thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But also in the book of Revelation, we find a reflection of Jesus' teaching here. It won't be Satan alone in the lake of fire. Back in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, we hear an angel making a terrible announcement. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Whether you believe that those who worship the beast and take his mark refer only to people living in the final few years of human history, or that those depicted this way represent all unbelievers throughout history, what happens to them in this vision is the same thing Jesus is talking about happening to all the goats. The language of perpetual torment reflected in both for both Satan in Revelation 20 and all of his children in Revelation 14, I believe rules out the possibility that God merely causes the wicked to cease to exist. The view often called annihilationism or conditional immortality. Though there are many faithful students of Scripture who hold those views. The eternal punishment Jesus speaks of will indeed last forever. But why will the goats go to hell? In verses 42 and 43, Jesus presents the king as having the same set of problems as before, but the goats did not respond to those needs. Del Bruner observes, it is not murder, idolatry, adultery, lying, blasphemy, or anything like that that Jesus condemns here any more than it was heroic virtues that he commended in the sheep. As in the parable of the talents, in which the condemned third slave was condemned because he did nothing with what he was given, so these goats are condemned because of their failure to act. Sins of omission are just as serious as sins of commission. Pastor Doug O'Donnell refers to this as the damnation of the do-nothings. So why don't the goats know? The goats protest ignorance in a parallel way to the sheep. However, it may be significant that their collective response is rather clipped. One writer observes, unlike the sheep who expressed their confusion and surprise in a way that matched the king's careful and deliberate recitation of each situation and its response, the goats respond with a laundry list in a quick flurry of words, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, that demonstrates little interest in focusing carefully on each need and on each person in need. The goats seem to be claiming that if they had recognized the king in need in these ways, then surely they would have responded by helping. They even addressed the king as Lord, as did the sheep. But for the goats, they can say the word, But there is no evidence to support that during their lifetimes, they actually submitted to him as Lord. He truly is Lord of all. And the fact that they didn't acknowledge him as such does not excuse them from accountability on Judgment Day. As Romans 1 indicates, whether anyone has heard the gospel or not, or heard of Jesus or not, creation itself testifies truth about God the Creator And human beings naturally, habitually, consistently, and universally suppress that truth in their unrighteousness and are and always will be, therefore, without excuse. Thus, from other scriptures, we know that the condemnation of the wicked will include more than what Jesus portrays here. How unbelievers respond poorly to Jesus' followers is one reason unbelievers will be condemned. But there are many 
goats who will have never met a sheep, unbelievers who never heard the gospel, and they will still be condemned because of their suppression of the truth that was before them and, of course, for their sin. In the king's response, he only uses the phrase, the least of these, leaving off the phrase, my brothers. Some folks make much of this in order to support the idea that the goats are being condemned for a broader failure of caring for needy people in general. Contextually, I think that is unnecessary, since the sheep are depicted as being right there on the king's right hand, and the goats are depicted as being right there on the king's left hand. The sheep and goats should still be able to see each other. So when the king says, the least of these, I suspect he could gesture toward the sheep to indicate who the objects of their care should have been. Failing to serve the sheep equals failing to serve the shepherd king. The goats didn't ignore the sheep in order to purposefully anger their shepherd. However, the fact that they didn't understand the connection between the sheep and the shepherd that they didn't recognize the king in his subjects, that they didn't care for the needs of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven because Jesus was their king, reveals that these goats had no love and no respect for the king and therefore do not belong in his kingdom. Jesus' picture here may connect back with how he instructed his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. There in the kingdom mission discourse, he established the tight connection between himself and his disciples, emphatically concluding that teaching block with a warning about how the way people treated them, positively and negatively, would be regarded as the way they treated himself. In Matthew ten forty, he had said, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Then in verse 42, we see a specific application of this principle. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The operative phrase there is because he is a disciple. Earlier in that same block of teaching, as Jesus indicated that he was sending his disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he told them how some people would welcome them, responding appropriately to them and their message while others would reject them and their message. Thus, in Matthew 10, 14, he instructed them, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And then he added, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. However, the goats claim not to see that connection. For an unbeliever, when you come in the name of Jesus... If they reject you, your message, they reject your preaching, they may treat you poorly. But on the other hand, they might actually give you a cup of cold water. But if they're not doing that because they've received the gospel message that you've shared with them, if they're not doing that because they're serving you as a disciple, they may face this condemnation as a goat on Judgment Day if they don't. Repent. Judgment will be according to works, but it will not be only according to works. As Paul says in Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But let's not lose sight of Jesus' emphasis in this story. 
It is because of the goat's failure to serve Jesus' siblings that they are condemned. They do not have good works that accord with their faith. They do not have good works that demonstrate their faith in Jesus because they don't have faith in Jesus. Martin Luther, in his preface to, the Roman, to Romans, commented helpfully on the relationship between faith and works. He wrote, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. The only question left to ask is, are you a sheep? What are the distinctives of the sheep that belong to the good shepherd, Jesus? From this passage, the major work of the sheep was an unhypocritical care for each other. So the question is, are we looking after each other? Are we caring for one another's needs as brothers and sisters in Christ? This is manifestly not merely in terms of spiritual health. This is the practical care of providing food and drink when needed, the sharing of resources like clothing, the ministry of presence and care for those who are suffering with sickness, and the unique visitation and support of imprisoned Christians. But another passage commends itself. I invite you to turn in a Bible, or turn on your Bible, as it were, and find John chapter 10. I'm going to be moving quickly, and this won't be up on the screen for you. John chapter 10 highlights the relationship between the sheep and the good shepherd. From this passage, we learn several key characteristics of the sheep. The first, most obvious, and perhaps most important, is that they heed the word of the shepherd. In verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. In verse 4, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In verse 16, they will listen to his voice. And in verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is not merely to say that the sheep recognize the sound of the shepherd's voice, registering it audibly in their minds. No, this is to say that the sheep trust and obey the shepherd. Jesus explains why the Jewish leaders were rejecting him in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Thus, genuine followers of Jesus trust and obey Jesus. Not perfectly. Sheep are indeed prone to wander. But when the shepherd calls, they come. This is a reference to both a person's initial response to Jesus' call coming to Him for salvation, responding to the gospel message with faith and repentance, and also to a person's ongoing pursuit of obedience to Jesus' word in the Scriptures. When He talks about His voice here, He's not talking about some internal thing that you hear in your mind or in your heart. He's talking about what you read and hear from the pages of this book. That's where His word is found. That's where you hear Jesus' voice today. And He's saying that His followers, His sheep... Listen to and obey this book. Heed His Word. 
So the question is, do you seek to obey Jesus every day? Every day. We don't take a day off from being a sheep. Second, we see that the sheep are owned by the shepherd. In verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name. In verse 4, he refers to bringing out all his own. In verses 12 and 13, the shepherd is contrasted with the hired hand who does not own the sheep and cares nothing for the sheep. By contrast, Jesus remains with the sheep. Come what may, whatever dangers, whatever threats, Jesus stays with his sheep. He cares for the sheep. He protects the sheep because he owns them. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Do you recognize Jesus as your owner and master? Or is your life marked by the independence of the goat that doesn't like to be told where to go or how to live or what to do? Third, we see that the sheep have been given to the shepherd as a gift from the shepherd's father. In verse 29, Jesus speaks of my father who has given them to me. This also implies the value of the sheep, which is also demonstrated in that the shepherd gives his life for them. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He repeats this in verse 15. He elaborates on the laying down of his life in verses 17 and 18. If you are a sheep, then God the Father has given you to his Son as a gift of love. The Father's love to the Son is expressed in giving you dirty, smelly, imperfect you as a gift to His Son. And His Son cleans it all up and makes good use of it. Because Jesus loves His sheep, He gives His life for them. Surely we can see Jesus mixing a couple of powerful theological metaphors here, but the point is magnified. Sheep are highly valued by God and by Jesus. Do you view yourself that way? Do you remember that you've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ? Finally, we see that the sheep are eternally, perfectly secure. It is of his sheep that Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father's hand and the Son's hand hold you in the sheep pen, dear Christian. Oh, sheep prone to wander. It is the omnipotent power of God the Father plus the omnipotent power of God the Son that ensures you won't fall off the narrow road that leads to life. Find your assurance there. And we could add that it is the omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit that ensures that you will produce the good works that will become part of the eternal public record which will justify your justification on Judgment Day. Jesus is coming back. I believe He could return at any moment. Readiness looks like caring for each other in practical ways. Readiness looks like walking the paths of righteousness along which your good shepherd will lead you. 
Readiness looks like serving faithfully with everything you've been given. Readiness looks like telling others about Jesus. Readiness looks like trusting Jesus to provide for you and to protect you. Readiness looks like the words of the great sheep, King David, in Psalm 23, from the New Living Translation with which I close. Yahweh is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to His name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of Yahweh forever. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you for being our shepherd. Such an image, such a powerful and beautiful and comforting image. Help us to see our identity as sheep, to own our waywardness, to admit it when we're turning in the wrong direction, and to come running back when you call Help us to find our security in you and in you alone. And I pray, I pray, O Lord, that those who might not yet know you, those who might be among us who are faking it, would you penetrate the hardness of their hearts and awaken them to their need for grace. Enable them to cry out to you. Help them to see themselves as they really are. Help them to see the warning of this passage and to turn to you for rescue. You are the only one who can save us from such condemnation. And you have done everything necessary to do it. So help us to cling to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to find you to be the gracious and loving shepherd that you have shown yourself to be in the scriptures. Thank you, Father, for loving us so richly. Thank you for having such riches of grace to pour out upon us. Help us to never look at you and think of you as stingy or miserly. Help us to see the ways that you have showered us, lavished upon us your grace. We are a privileged people. Unbelievers and believers alike, you have given such gifts. Help us to see you, turn to you, and trust in you for eternal life and for everything that comes from this moment forward. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.